0: you ever had those moments where you'd wished you'd done something differently? You know those sorts of moments where if you could just have your time over again you would have changed the way you went about doing certain things. Uh, I'm having one of those moments this morning because there's a very big part of me that wishes that we weren't doing Jeremiah 25 today. That if I could have my time over again I would have finished this series on Jeremiah last week back in chapter 24. In fact, I I came so close to not preaching on this passage and just doing a one-off talk on some other part of the Bible altogether. Let me tell you why. Uh, Let me offer you this morning two reasons why you almost did not get a talk on Jeremiah 25 uh, before finishing off with why in the end. Uh, Look, I just felt compelled that we ought to have a look at it, especially this time of year. Firstly, there are two reasons why I prefer not to be preaching on it, and reason number one has to do with context. And by that I mean the context of where this chapter fits into the structure of the book. Because you see, here we are, finally at the end of this little series on Jeremiah that we've been working through, and I now reckon that chapter 25 is a really dumb place ...to finish a sermon series on Jeremiah. On. I haven't always thought that. Uh, when I first started planning this series quite a few months ago, I used to think that chapter 25 was going to be a really good tro- place to stop, but I've changed my mind. A- and that's Jeremiah for you, uh, what well, is for me. I find it a really hard book to figure out. It's very complicated. It's got lots of different text types. Sometimes it's a narrative first person, third person, sometimes it's poetry. It's not put together in chronological order. It's really hard to see a very big overarching uh, logical sequence at times. And so what tends to happen with Jeremiah, I don't know if you've read it for yourself, but what tends to happen is you read a little section of Jeremiah and you can sort of see what the little section's all about, but it's really hard to see what it's got to do with what's gone before it and what's gone after it. It's a complicated book. It's a sort of book that no two commentators ever seem to agree on its structure. For what it's worth though, here's what I now think. I'm not going to bore you with what I used to think. Here's what I now think. I'm thinking it's got two big sections to it. The first section runs from chapter 1 to 24 and it's a section that opens and closes with references to God tearing down and building up nations. Uh, It opens and closes with references about God planting and uprooting nations. That sort of brackets the first half and the progression of thought within the first half is that Israel is revealed as the nation to be uprooted and torn down. And the exiles in Babylon are revealed as a new people of God who are going to be planted and built up. And if you've been here the last few weeks, hopefully this is ringing some bells. We've seen it time and time again. God is going to bring judgment on Israel for her rejection of him and he's going to plant the exiles as, as a new people in whom God will give a new heart. second half of the book, though, is really different. It opens and closes with prophecies from Jeremiah, not just about Israel, but about all the nations, both in the chapter we've just heard read and at the very end of the book, God works through all the world. And it's almost as if, having now dealt with Israel in the first half of the book, the camera zooms out in the second half of the book and you get a much bigger picture in play. Uh, It's as if the second half of the book um, works through a much bigger canvas, a much more obvious worldwide canvas is a play. Now I could say a lot more about that. Uh, putting it up on the screen like that, it looks so nice and neat and obvious uh, it 's actually pretty complicated i reckon uh, bottom line i 'm not thinking twenty five is the best place to break a sermon series, is it because we 're only just at the start of the second half of the book it 's weird to deal with this chapter and then go away and leave the rest of Jeremiah to the re- to sometime next year, which is what we 're going to do it 's about as sensible as reading the first chapter of a Harry Potter book, and then putting it away for a few months, um, by which time you've forgotten all the storyline and the main... I'm sorry about that. My fault. I've just changed my mind. My, constant, my consoling hope is that looking at chapter 25 this morning will whet your appetite to keep reading, that you'll actually feel so frustrated by leaving the second half of the book up in the air like this, that you'll be prompted to read it yourself. All in all, though, if I had my time over again, uh, i prefer not to be preaching on it today. There's a second reason, though, I'd prefer not to be preaching on it, and that's not so much to do with its context, but its content. Because you were listening to it when it was read for us, weren't you? Uh, for the sake of time, we didn't read the whole chapter, but what we did hear read, that's pretty representative of what the whole thing's about. It's about judgment. It's about punishment. It's about the fierce anger of This is not a happy part of the Bible. If I was planning a sermon series as a lead-up to Christmas... Uh, Jeremiah 25 is not one of the first chapters to spring to mind. Uh, The way the chapter works is it moves from pronouncements of judgments to really drastic pictures of judgment. Firstly, you get pronouncements of judgment, and in the opening verses, which we didn't read, they really form a summary of everything we've seen so far about how God's been warning Israel for ages to get her act together. She hasn't got her act together, so they're going to be punished. Uh, Verse 8, for example. Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. Now in one sense there's nothing new there. Uh, We've heard this plenty of times already. What is new though is that these pronouncements of judgment now, they don't stop on Israel. God starts to rattle off the names of nation after nation after nation. We heard them read. And eventually you get to the point where it's every nation, every living person on earth is caught up in the judgment of God. For example, verse 31 that they all read. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind. Put the wicked to the sword, declares the Lord. And friends, if that isn't heavy enough, the chapter then moves from pronouncements of judgment to very disturbing pictures of it. Uh, In the reading that we just had, you got that word picture of the nations having to drink the cup of God's wrath and then staggering around, vomiting from it, and of the nations being butchered with swords in their drunkenness, uh, being too stupefied to even defend themselves. And then there were word pictures of people weeping and wailing and dead bodies piled high over the ground. Verse 33... At that time, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere, from one end of the earth to the other. They will not be be mourned or gathered up or buried, but will be like refuse lying on the ground. And after that, there are word pictures of God like a fierce lion, stalking people down, hunting people down, sounds of terror resounding from one end of the earth to the other. Verse 37. The peaceful meadows, they'll be laid waste because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he will leave his lair and their land will become desolate because of the sword of the oppressor and because of the Lord's fierce anger. This is a terrible passage. It's about the terrifying, fierce anger of the Lord of all the universe, against whom there is no escape as he pours out his judgment onto all mankind. And this is not a disaster movie that you can turn off and forget. This is not a fantasy novel that you can put down and ignore. It is describing an event that is truly going to happen. Especially so because of what we considered last week when we were thinking about the evilness of the human heart, remember that? That left to our own inclinations, we don't have a heart that wants to know God. Left to our own inclinations, we don't have a heart that wants to do what God says. And passages like this, along with lots of other passages in the Bible, they describe the day when God will have just had enough he have enough of our impertinence and he will pour out his wrath on all humanity. And every single person in your life that you know is going to be caught up in this. The people who served you in the shops this weekend, the celebrities you see on television, the colleagues you rub shoulders with at work, the people you meet at school, the people in your family, your mum and your dad your children, your brothers, your sisters, your friends. No one is immune from the day when the Lord roars on high against every nation. No one will be immune on the day that he thunders from his holy dwelling against everyone, when he brings judgment on everyone. And there is not one of us who merits getting off. During the week, I was listening to an interview with some of the Australians who escaped from that terrible terrorist attack in India. It sounded terrifying. Uh, They spoke of being alone in the dark, huddled in their hotel rooms, just not daring to make a sound. Uh, Listening to footsteps running up and down the corridor outside their room. Seeing the shadows underneath the, the, the crack in the door. Hearing the gunfire. Hearing explosions hearing people uh, screaming, not knowing whether to answer that knock at the door, not knowing whether to pick up the phone in the motel room that was ringing. sounded terrible. And I don't want to minimalise how paralysing that must have been for them. That is nothing compared to the terror of being hunted down by the God of all the universe. Because when that very, very, very big God that we've kept bumping up against time and time again in Jeremiah, that God who knows you even before you were conceived in your mother's womb, that God who uh, watches over his word so that it always becomes true, that, that God who can blow entire nations away like just dust out of his hand, when that God comes after you in judgment... It is a terrifying thing to fall into his hands. You cannot imagine the extent to which he can punish you. This is not a passage I enjoy preaching on. If I had my time over, I'd be doing something else. But of course we're not. We're looking at it this morning because in the end there is a very compelling reason why it's actually the perfect chapter to be looking at at this time of the year. Because, you see, a chapter like this opens our eyes to the staggering importance of Christmas. A chapter like this actually opens our eyes to the magnitude of that life-changing moment when an angel stood before Joseph and explained to him that his fiancée was about to have a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And suddenly you see with the coming of this Jesus, there is an opportunity to escape what Jeremiah 25 describes. We actually have a chance to escape By being one of Jesus' people. That's why he came, to save his people from their sins. We get to escape what this chapter portrays by taking refuge in Jesus, by going to him for help. And as many of you know, the reason he can help us is because he goes through it in our place. Can you imagine that? Choosing to go through what Jeremiah 25 describes. Choosing to drink the cup of God's anger. No wonder he was terrified in the garden. No wonder he begged the cup to be taken from. him. It is an extraordinary thing that Jesus does. Which makes it a pretty good chapter to think about today, doesn't it? Yes, it's heavy, it's distressing, but it ought to make us feel just the sheer sense of relief that Jesus has come. As the Australians talked about their experiences in the Taj Hotel um, during those attacks, they related about how the rescue squad, the Indian rescue squad, had actually contacted them on their mobile phones. Uh, they were mainly businessmen, so they all had their mobile phones with them. And as they had huddled in the dark, terrified, the rescue squads were actually ringing them on their mobile phones, uh, talking them through it, telling them, not to answer the motel phone. That's not them. That's the terrorist ring. They're ringing around the rooms trying to find where the foreigners are. Don't answer that knock on the door. That, that's not the rescue squad. That's the terrorists. They're going door to door. Just stay where you are. Keep quiet. We're coming to get you. Just do what we say. Don't you reckon you'd just be hanging off Every single word they said to you. That is the effect Jeremiah 25 should have on us concerning Jesus. This is a chapter that parades before us the fierce anger of God. And it screams out to us, friends, you need to be rescued from this. You need to do what Jesus says. Trust him. Be one of his people. He came to save them from his sins. I'm thinking that's a really good thing to think about this time of year. Because like when you're down the street this time of year, you know, there's all the crowds, can't get a park, the bustle of all the traffic. Do you just sort of selfishly look out and see long queues of people that are an inconvenience to you? Or do you actually see hundreds upon hundreds of people who need to escape from what Jeremiah 25 says? When you were listening to the mission announcements earlier on this morning, what were you thinking? You know, the carols, the lights, the. Did you sort of just listen through them with bored familiarity? Or did you hear them as opportunities? for people to be rescued from what Jeremiah 25 says. Because, friends, this is not a game. I know sometimes we treat it like that. I know, you know, sometimes we, we get keen about Jesus for a little while, but usually we're just lukewarm. And we tinker around the edge of churches when it suits us. And we come along on a Sunday, and often it's a good chance to catch up on some sleep. It's not a game. The stakes to do with Jesus are enormous. Through Jesus, we are linked into an opportunity to escape the fierce anger of the Lord. Through Jesus, we have the opportunity to have sins forgiven and be granted life eternal. Through Jesus, we have the opportunity to never, ever go through what Jeremiah 25 uh, describes. And so, yeah, I can think of a couple of reasons why I prefer not to talk about it. It's a weird place to finish a series in in Jeremiah. And it's it's all about judgment and punishment and God being angry. But it's a good one to think about this time of year, to just shake us out of that indifference that can over... to shake us away from all the distractions, to wake us up to our apathy at times and to remind us of exactly what it is you and I would have to go through if Jesus had never come. Thank God he did. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending a rescuer to save his people from their sins. Thank you that because of Jesus, we don't have to go through Any of what this chapter describes because he's been through it for us. Father, thank you. And Lord, we'd love you to rescue the people in our lives that we love as well. Please give us the opportunity to talk to them this Christmas, to offer invitations, to give them gifts to just tell them about Jesus. And Father, we know that your first reaction is to love and not punish. We know that you are uh, slow to punish, quick to forgive. And so, Father, we would delight, we we would be ecstatic if you would use this Christmas to save those people in our lives who do not yet follow Jesus. Thank you that in him there is rescue. Amen.